so much of biology is going to be a data science endeavor. It's just and high technology stuff. The days of people sitting at benches most of their lives, pipetting individual test tubes is just going to be long gone. There'll be some of that, but there'll be a lot of just really immense amounts of data being generated at micro levels of cellular cells and cell networks. It's just going to be a whole different world, I think, five, 10 years from now. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello there, and thanks for joining me for episode 35 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. 2018 was an awesome year for genomics and genomics research. Thousands of people just like you listened into the podcast over the past year to hear experts discuss how genomics is shaping our understanding of science and the environment. In this episode, I'll share some of our podcast highlights and future predictions for genomics, where we were in 2018, and where we're going in 2019 and beyond. To begin, here's Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, laying out his grand vision for how genomics and big data will fundamentally change basic science and medicine over the coming years. On the basic science side, I think our abilities to study individual cells at every omic level possible, but starting just with genomics, is going to give us a whole new view of the complexity of biology. I mean, so much of biology, even though we have great insights about how does the kidney work and how does the liver work and how does the brain work, et cetera, et cetera. But most of what we're looking at is a blend of many different cells. The human cell atlas, for example. As an example, but then not even just the atlas, but being able to take a tissue and be able to perturb it in different ways and study the different types of cells doing different things or look at different disease processes. So I just think our view of the complexity of biology is going to explode when we start to look at things cell by cell and have the technologies to do that. So I think on the basic science side, that's where the, and of course, the immediate thing you could ask me is, oh my gosh, that'll be a tremendous amount of data. And you're absolutely right. (laughs) And so the other aspect of that explosion is going to be quantum leaps in how we assimilate and analyze amounts of data that are just going to be mind boggling. So artificial intelligence is going to be. Yes, or whatever even is beyond that. I mean, it's just so much of biology is going to be a data science endeavor. It's just and high technology stuff. And in the days of people sitting at benches most of their lives, pipetting individual test tubes is just going to be long gone. There'll be some of that, but there'll be a lot of just really immense amounts of data being generated at micro levels of cellular cells and cell networks. It's just going to be just a whole different world, I think, five, 10 years from now. Then on the clinical side, it's also going to have a theme of high data. I just think we're going to enter a phase where obviously when I think there's going to be a lot of genomic information about individual patients and figuring out how to use that. But it's also going to not just be genomic data that's going to be the pivotal thing. I think it's going to be the genomic data coupled with much better handle on electronic health record data, which, you know, 15 years ago was almost non-existent. Now is much more existent, although it's not still not easy to use, but that's, I think, going to change a lot. And then on top of it are going to be types of data that are going to be basically captured by, I think, one of the next revolutions in technology, which is going to be mobile sensors that are going to measure all sorts of things about our physiology. And I think the earliest examples of them are, you know, Fitbits and very cute apps that we have on our smartphones. But I'm talking about real 
research grade at first and then eventually clinical grade mobile health devices. And I think it's going to be that interplay of genomic information coupled with real-time physiologic data, coupled with lots of data about everything about your healthcare, everything about knowledge about you. And having these incredibly data-intensive opportunities, I think is going to also be transformative in medicine. This view that genomics will drive advances in human health is shared by all of our expert guests from 2018, like Professor Bob Fulton, who is Director of Technical Development at the McDonald Genome Institute at Washington University. He joined me to talk about human population sequencing and building a more complete human genome sequence. Bob believes that current and future population sequencing initiatives are really going to power new discoveries that improve human health. On the technology side, we can already produce so much data, and the trajectory of that doesn't seem to be slowing. So that's exciting to me. I think the challenges will be providing enough samples and having enough information about those samples to interpret and drive discovery. But I'm really excited about the discoveries that are going to come out of the data that we're producing today. So the impact of tens of thousands of genomes, and you're starting to see this already, these aggregate data sets, and the more scale that we're able to do, the more we're gonna be able to glean out key information to power discovery. And you're starting to see the momentum of discovery translate to human health. So that's the ultimate goal for me is, human health or just improve our lives. And whether it be with human sequencing or ag type projects that we've been involved in, the discovery based on genomic information, I think it just seems to be accelerating. The discoveries that are gonna come out of that, even in the short term, are pretty exciting. Next generation sequencing or NGS studies can produce massive amounts of data. To help identify patterns in these large data sets, scientists are increasingly turning toward artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms. I talked about machine learning methods with Dr. Richard Scheuermann, director of the La Jolla campus at the J. Craig Venter Institute. Richard feels that machine learning will be an increasingly important tool for genomics and for biology. I mentioned earlier that we've started to apply artificial intelligence and machine learning in a lot of our informatics pipelines. Once we got comfortable with the principles and the techniques, we started to realize that we can use machine learning in a lot of different ways that go beyond the classical classification problem, which mm -hmm. traditionally machine learning is designed to build a model that allows you to determine classes of objects. What we're finding is that the model itself is actually really informative. It's not just solving this classification problem. In fact, what we're doing to identify the necessary and sufficient marker genes, we're using machine learning and taking the model, which is composed of the genes that are good for classifying it, and using those to define the cell types. I used to be pretty skeptical about machine learning, but the more that we've started to use it, the more I realize that this is a really powerful technique and we've got so much data. Epigenetic or epigenomic techniques are used to detect DNA modifications rather than changes in DNA sequence. Scientists use epigenomics in order to understand how genes are regulated. Doctors Andrew Wells and Struan Grant of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discussed their work in identifying DNA changes that underlie pediatric disorders. 
They predict that epigenomics will drive precision medicine moving forward. First Andrew, followed by Struan. Well, I think next generation sequencing, as it becomes higher throughput, as it becomes cheaper, as it becomes maybe miniaturized, obviously we can incorporate genome-wide technologies to everything that we do, everything that we read out. Every cell has the same genome, but it needs to express different genes and it needs to remember what to express and what not to express. So I think we're going to make tremendous advances in that area of understanding cellular differentiation and memory over the next five to 10 years with these next-gen sequencing technologies really allowing us to push the way forward. Yeah, I agree that epigenomics is going to be a key part of driving precision medicine. And part of that precision will be also genome editing. And, you know, genome editing has not been around that long. It's been only, I think, a handful of years. Yeah, it's a real explosion. So I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff coming out the next five to 10 years with CRISPR and related techniques. I think ultimately we're going to start seeing that having therapeutic usage. And if you're going to be targeting genes with CRISPR, you want to know which are the right genes. And that's partly what our mission is. CRISPR-mediated gene editing is a real revolution in understanding the links between genotype and phenotype. In episode 32, Professor Sam Sternberg of Columbia University joined me to explain CRISPR and discuss its impact on biology. Sam predicts that newer and more efficient CRISPR gene editing tools are awaiting discovery, and these will lead to new biological insights. So I think one area that's going to be really exciting is continuing to prove the efficiency of gene editing outcomes, and in particular, the more precise form of repair known as homology-directed repair. Because for certain therapeutic applications, it's still actually quite challenging, especially in some cell types, to make precise changes where the double-strand break introduced by CRISPR is edited in the way that is required for reversing some disease phenotype. So that might be improving the delivery of these donor templates or new methods for inserting genes into the genome in a target-specific and accurate manner. And then for me, I think one really exciting area is going back to the biology, continuing to understand the diversity of different CRISPR systems, but also going beyond CRISPR and understanding other new immune systems that have been recently discovered in bacteria, how they work how they recognize viral DNA, and whether understanding some of these uncharacterized enzymes and new flavors of immune systems might reveal new kinds of tools that we haven't even touched yet. Dr. Karis Eng is the Harness Endowed Chair of Cancer Genomic Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, and she joined me to discuss the genetics of cancer risk. Like Struan and Andrew, Karis predicts that genomics and epigenomics are poised to help drive precision medicine. But she also explained that integrating multiple omics technologies will further unlock the potential for precision medicine, especially in cancer. Omics inform P-medicine <laughs> because it will be all of it in time because it's still creaking away. I mean, genomics, the structure part rules, of right. course, because we have right the most now. knowledge. Sure. Then the next part will be the epigenome, eventually all the way to transcriptome, all the way to the proteome. We're seeing in my labs using more and more proteomics, and we're not proteomics people. So we're creaking away, and it will have to be an integration in the cancer field. It'll have to be integration of germline somatic, of course, because right now the two fields, for some strange reason, are going like this. So we need to bring it back together. 
and then not just risk stratify, not just high-risk surveillance, I would like to see a safe prevention vaccine. Wouldn't that be much better? I mean, what a yeah. pain. Why not have a vaccine or be... a magic probiotic pill? And then this is where pharmacogenomics comes in as well. Not everyone will have the same magic pill or vaccine. So we are going into a rapid phase two expansion of my institute. We have an open search for free faculty positions in pharmacogenomics. So I'm taking us down that route. And we will open a search next year for six to eight more wow. faculty for integrative omics. And then we will have gene editing. And I'm preparing us for that. The combined genetic material in a particular environment, like the ocean, is called a microbiome. And studying a particular microbiome can teach us a lot about nature and the environment. In episode 17, Professor Debashish Bhattacharya of Rutgers University discussed genomics approaches for studying endosymbiosis and marine biodiversity. Debashish explained that genomic studies of microbes in their natural environments will allow scientists to better understand how microbial genes and genomes work. I think one of the hallmarks of what next generation sequencing from single cell genomics to metagenomics to metatranscriptomics to metaproteomics, what all of these methods are really supporting is working within the environment. I think what's going to come along in the future is there's going to be a real explosion of sophisticated methods to sample cells in situ, whether it's in a liter of seawater whether it's in a pond, whether it's associated with the root of a plant, I think we have to get beyond reducing complex eukaryotes to models that are easy for us to understand. We have to actually figure out ways that we can start to understand how they live in their natural environment and what their genomes are good for. That is unraveling the function of this large chunk of the genome for which we have no knowledge is really going to be a massive challenge. And that's going to be solved by methods that allow you to understand gene function in situ, in nature, under conditions that the cells are seeing that we're not going to be able to replicate in the lab or even know that those conditions exist. So this is, I think, one of the major areas of growth in the next 10 years. Genomics approaches are not limited to studying marine environments. The human microbiome is the collection of trillions of microbes and their DNA that live in and on us. Dr. Ami Bhatt of Stanford University explained how we interact with our human gut microbiome and how these interactions could lead to human disease. Ami believes that microbiome studies will continue to improve our understanding of human biology and will ultimately lead to development of microbially-derived therapeutics. The things that excite me the most are us returning to an understanding that microorganisms are alive and changing. I think many of the methods that we use to enumerate microorganisms have led us to focus on their taxonomy, which is like what genus and what species is present, and just counting how many of them there are and which different kinds there are. But I think fundamentally, we're all more interested in what they do and how they change with exposures to our common environmental toxins, foods, etc., and so I think one thing that we'll see is methods that allow us to understand how these organisms change over time, how they adapt, how they respond to triggers, toxins, and exposures in our environment. I think we'll learn a lot about molecules, secreted proteins, etc., that actually are the ways that microbes communicate with us. I think finally, we'll learn a lot about how our bodies and our genomes respond to these communication signals. 
So I think there's a lot of space. I do hope that we'll see the advent of some microbially derived therapeutics, whether they are specific microbes, mixtures of microbes, genetically engineered microbes, or just compounds that microbes make that have advantageous outcomes for us. But I think those are some of the things we'll see. Although many of the microbes within the human microbiome are beneficial, some pathogenic microbes can cause us harm. Dr. Michael Wilson of the University of California, San Francisco, uses NGS to identify pathogenic organisms that can cause brain inflammation. He predicts that metagenomics and NGS might one day be incorporated into diagnostic testing for meningitis and encephalitis. I don't see why within a few years with automation and with cheaper sequencing, why you wouldn't just turn to this as a first-line diagnostic test for any patient with meningitis and encephalitis. My hope would be that that's going to really replace a lot of these candidate-based tests going forward. And the stakes are high in the sense that, again, some of these conditions are quite treatable, but you just need to know which way to go. Do you give more antimicrobials of one sort or another, or do you go suppress the immune system? I think that's the other piece of what we're hoping. If we can show that the sensitivity of this test is really good, then the other hope is that a negative NGS result could really help physicians feel more comfortable about starting immune suppression early. Right. Instead of saying, oh, we checked. Let's wait a while and do another 21st, 23rd test. Exactly. So yeah, instead of saying, well, we ruled out 10 organisms. What if you could say we really, to the best of our ability, have ruled out hundreds of organisms with a single test and as a result, be more confident early on about going down another treatment route? In addition to infectious diseases, scientists are also researching NGS approaches for diagnosing monogenic or Mendelian disorders. Dr. Richard J. Smith and his team at the University of Iowa developed genomics-based testing for deafness and hearing loss. Richard is excited about the potential combination of genetic testing and gene therapy for hearing loss treatment in the future. So there's lots of things that excite me about the future, but one of the most exciting, I think, is the potential for genetic testing in hearing loss to be foundational for novel forms of treatment for hearing loss. So today, if you have hearing loss, you can be fitted with a hearing aid and you may get a cochlear implant. And those technologies are incredible. And so they allow you to do very well but it's important to recognize that they don't restore biological hearing. So they restore your ability to hear and function and communicate, but you still may have difficulty in noise, in restaurants, interacting in social and noisy, complex listening situations. And mm -hmm. so if you can actually restore biological hearing, that would be great. And so we're spending a lot of effort on different types of gene therapy for hearing loss focusing on different genetic causes. And so those two will be linked. The therapy might be linked to the cause. And certain causes may be more easily treated than others. And so I'm looking forward to the time when we can offer to somebody hearing aids, a cochlear implant, or some type of gene therapy. I think that will be incredibly exciting. Most diseases are more complex than monogenic diseases, and they can be influenced by a combination of multiple genes and DNA variants. NGS and Genome-Wide Association Studies, or GWAS, can evaluate the risk of these more complex diseases. 
Dr. Guillaume Perret is Canada Research Chair in Genetic and Molecular Epidemiology at McMaster University. In episode 23, Guy explained how he uses genomics to develop better genetic and molecular markers for cardiac diseases. He predicts that whole genome sequencing will ultimately make its way into the clinic for routine use. The cost of sequencing is decreasing exponentially. And I think that at some point we will reach this point where the cost of sequencing will meet the value, even the dollar value, to the healthcare system of having this information. And to me, this is the tipping point. And once we will have reached this tipping point, this is where this whole genome sequencing and genomics analysis will go from a curiosity that clinicians and scientists find very cool mm-hmm. to something that will say, oh my God, if we do this sequencing, the healthcare system is going to save $150 and the sequencing costs $100. It will not take a whole lot of time <laughs> to spread like wildfire. So this is the breakthrough that I'm waiting for. Whether the timeline is 5, 10, or 15 years, this is so very exciting. And I think this will be a paradigm shift on how healthcare is done and patient outcome, basically. That's the bottom line. That's the most important as well. NGS-based prenatal screening can evaluate the risk of some common birth defects. Dr. Ronald Wapner is the Vice Chair of Research in Obstetrics and Gynecology at Columbia University. In episode 31, he explained how non-invasive prenatal testing, or NIPT, can be used to screen for prenatal chromosomal abnormalities, like trisomy 21. Ronald also shared his vision for how prenatal genetic screening technology might evolve over time. The last horizon is to non-invasively be able to sequence a fetus, to look at every base pair. You can do that. You can absolutely do that today. The feasibility, biologic plausibility to do that has been proven. One can not do that as a clinical process. I'm not suggesting that that's the right thing to do. The argument is how much should you know about the DNA of a fetus? But one has to take into consideration that one of the main causes of birth defects are fetal structural anomalies, congenital birth defects. The general risk of Down syndrome in the general population is 1 in 800. Birth defects occur in 3%. Wow. And the vast majority of these are caused by single base pair mutations, and they're de novo mutation. So you can't screen for them. So they occur only in that fetus, not necessarily in the parents. So non-invasively, we can eliminate already by carrier screening the majority of the recessive diseases. We can get some of the major chromosome abnormalities, but the 900-pound gorilla is the genetic etiology of some of these birth defects. So where that will start is we're not going to look for everything. We're going to look, these are the most common genes that are associated with the most common birth defects, and we can begin to start looking for those. Dr. Charles Rotimi of the National Human Genome Research Institute explained how genomics technology will increasingly allow us to better understand human history, who we are, and where we come from. Charles is also working hard to empower genomics research across Africa. And he believes that genomics has the potential to transform human health in developing countries. We have an unprecedented opportunity in biomedical research to query our inheritance in a way that we've never been able to do in the context of just even understanding human history. Then in terms of 
where this is really going. I'm hoping that at some point we are going to carry our genome just like we carry our driver's license. And because of that, we may be able to integrate it within our own clinical care and be more efficient in how we give drugs to people and what drug is effective. And also maybe to use that to reduce the cost of healthcare, especially for developing countries right, where yeah. there's real challenge. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we can say, for this population, these are the drugs that really works very well. So you don't need to be buying those other drugs. So focus on this because we've studied the genetic variation of this population and we see that these are the drugs that are more efficient and things like that. So I think that's probably where we need to go or we can design new technology for newborn screening in a way that instead of paying $20 in a place like Nigeria to do newborn screening, we can do it for pennies. I think that would be absolutely phenomenal. That would be revolutionary, yes. Wow, what a hopeful message for the future. Well, I want to thank all of our guests for their amazing scientific and clinical work in genomics, and especially for sharing their stories of discovery with all of us. And I look forward to sharing more stories of scientific discovery with you in the year ahead. So if you like today's show, why not subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even get our show on your Amazon smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play the Illumina podcast. And the best part is it's all free. So join me next time right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.